Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Imagine spending your entire life not just outside of politics, but not really following national politics much on a day-to-day -day basis, because you're busy working as a principal in the New York City public schools. One day, after watching a bartender and community organizer take down a machine in a neighboring congressional district, you decide to launch your own long-shot primary campaign against the chairman of a powerful committee who's been serving in Congress for more than 30 years. Then imagine that you win and you arrive at congressional orientation with two incoming freshmen who have been believers in the QAnon conspiracy and may or may not be packing heat in the room with you. Then, just after you've been sworn in, the Capitol gets sacked by an angry mob. Such has been the fate of Jamal Bowman, a freshman congressman who represents Westchester and the Bronx. Bowman has made a Green New Deal for schools a top priority, and how much of it, if any, makes it into the major budget reconciliation bill still being finalized remains to be seen. On election day in November 2020, I spent the day with Bowman as he went from precinct to precinct and reflected on the transition from private figure to public official that he was going through. It sounds trivial, but one of the first things a lot of new members of Congress worry about is finding an apartment in Washington, especially if, like Jamal, they're not rich. So, you know, I'm not moving my family to D.C., mm -hmm. you know, so we'll still have to pay our mortgage, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and um, so I got to find an apartment. So I'll have a, a mortgage payment and, like, rent. And you have to pay for your apartment, right? That, yes. That's not covered by the... Yes, it's not covered, which, and it should be. I'm going to have my mortgage payment. I'm going to have to pay rent. I have my, my oldest son. I pay child support for him. He's also in college. Um, I have my own student loans. My wife has her student loans. Uh, obviously utilities and car and gas and all that. It's just like how, you know, the middle class, the working poor, the poor can't afford to run for Congress. And shit, you, when you win, what do you do then, you know? Um, so it's crazy. When did you first start thinking in, in terms that you could describe as political? I don't know, man. Probably when I was like, probably junior high school. I used to listen to a lot of political music, you know, political hip hop. So like, you know, I can play something for you right now. So this is the music I listened to pretty much all throughout like junior high school. Stuff with that sort of theme. Yeah. Yeah. While like, you know, sister being addicted to crack in real life and kids getting shot in real life, friends dealing drugs in real life. You know, you, you listen to music like that and you know what's happening in your family and you see what's going on in the world around you. It's all political. How's it feel to now be in a place where you can take that message and actually drive it somewhere well, into me, the corridors of power? Ask me tomorrow yeah. <laughs> after we officially, officially win. That was election day nearly a year ago.
Joining us now to discuss what he's been up to since is Representative Jamal Bowman. Congressman, welcome to Deconstructed. Thanks for having me, brother. Appreciate it, man. Good to be with yeah, you. Yeah, you got it. And so what a lot of, a lot of people might not know about you is that you did take a, a bit of a sojourn from the New York, New Jersey area and spent a little bit of time in West Virginia a, yes. while, a long time ago. Uh, what what was Virginia like? I mean, what was West Virginia like to you? And did anything you learned there you know, help you in these negotiations since now the entire world is waiting on the word of a West Virginian? Uh, what was it like? It was a lot of mountains. Uh, you know, the West Virginia, they're, they're, the college team is called the Mountaineers. I see why it was a lot of mountains. And I didn't learn much, man. You know, I wanted to go away to school. I wanted to play football. Um, the football team was a very, wasn't very good. I, I didn't have a, a good relationship with the coach. And uh, I only spent a few months there, man, from like September to December. And then I got out of there. But uh, West Virginia was a bit more rural than I understood and, and was ready for as a kid from New York City. Um, so I wasn't there that long. So I, I don't think I learned much uh, <laughs> that would help me in these negotiations, you know, and that's probably why we're in the position we're in right now. When when you left, were you like, I'm done with this? Or was it when you got back home, you're like, there's just no way I can go back for one more semester there? Oh, no. When I when I left, I was like, I'm done. I mean, it wasn't about <laughs> it wasn't like a West Virginia thing. I just wanted to be a, a bit closer to home. And uh, I ended up in at the University of New Haven in Connecticut, so that that was good. I got I got to play there and be a train ride away. And uh, yeah, when I left, I was done. But it wasn't it wasn't just the fact that it was West Virginia. It was just far, a little bit further than I I was ready for. And speaking of being out of your element, you know, in, in New York City, you don't meet many Republicans, or if you do meet Republicans, they're a different kind of they're a different type of Republican than the one that you're interacting with now in, in Washington. What, what's it been like learning about this kind of other half of the, of the country? What have been the, the, the moments interacting with Republicans that have stuck out with you the most? Yeah, man. I mean, you know, you, you, you watch them on, on the news and you, you watch them on TV and you read about them in the history books. But to, to meet, you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene, you know, in person, According to Q, many in our government are actively worshiping Satan, or they call Moloch. And Lauren Barber. Don't come knocking on my door with your Fauci outie. You leave us the hell alone. It's really bizarre. Like, I, you, you almost don't think that there are people who really believe these things, you know? One of the first things that happened was this argument around, you know, are our firearms allowed on the House floor? We have members of Congress who want to bring guns on the floor and have threatened uh, violence on other members of Congress. One just tried to bring a gun on the floor of the House. The moment you bring a gun onto the House floor in violation of rules, you put everyone around you in danger. You know, that was one of the first right. discussions. And because, you know, those two in particular from Georgia, like, were adamant about bringing firearms to the floor, I now have to walk through a metal detector every single day when I go to vote just to make sure Republicans don't bring firearms to the floor, right? So then, you know, add on top of that potential or possible collusion between Republicans 
in the House and insurrectionists, that's complete insanity, in my opinion. And then you've seen posters of, and again, not to pick on those two, because trust me, there's enough craziness to go around. But, you know, I think I saw a poster of Marjorie Taylor Greene holding like a, an assault rifle with a picture, picture of the squad behind her. You know, and then Lauren Barber did a, an ad with a nine millimeter, like talking about her, her right to bear arms. So that that kind of stuff is crazy. But then you have, you know, Madison Cawthorn and, you know, saying things at, at town halls about, you know, I, I wouldn't want to take up arms against my fellow citizen. But if things continue to go in this direction. If our election systems continue to be rigged and continue to be stolen, then it's, it's going to lead to one place, and it's bloodshed. And I will tell you, as much as I am willing to defend our liberty at all costs, there's nothing that I would dread doing more than having to pick up arms against a fellow American. You know, it, it, it's really, really scary stuff. And as a black man, it's even scarier, you know, because it's like... I, I would probably be one of the first targeted by by people like them and people who, who believe like them. So it's been pretty crazy, man. Pretty crazy. So me, meanwhile, you guys still have the majority. You're possibly in the home slim. stretch. Very <laughs> slim, slim. Very man. slim. Very as slim, slim as it could be. Oh, man. And so as Biden said the other day, everybody's president because everybody gets to have a veto over this agenda, uh, the thing you've been pushing the hardest, you know, from your campaign up till now is this, the, you know, Green New Deal for schools. Where does that stand? And are you, and you know, how far have you told the president you're willing to go to make sure that, that something along those lines is in? So right now we are still in negotiation. Um, it doesn't look good. Uh, we were calling for $1.43 trillion investments in public school infrastructure and buildings and jobs and redline communities and all of that good stuff, which would be 400 and some odd billion per year. What we got out of the, the first round of markups in Ed and Labor was $86 billion without the green language that needs to be a part of it to make sure we're reaching our climate goals. And, and that was more in alignment with, with Bobby Scott's RASA legislation than our uh, piece of legislation. We're trying to do something pretty creative now, which is uh, work with uh, Lisa Blunt Rochester because she has a bill that's looking to retrofit all public buildings that would include public schools. So we're working with her team to make sure the language is, you know, focused on electrification, which is a key piece to that. And we're trying to add more money there. So right now, still up in the air, you know, I mean, public schools were a big part, were one of my priorities for sure, and, and school construction. But also childcare was a, was a big one as well. And because we were willing to vote down the BIF, that's how we even got into, into the position of, to negotiate. So that's, that's a good thing. But like, we'll see where we are. I mean, this is like an hour to hour thing. You know, I just got to Washington. We're gonna have a, a meeting mm -hmm. tonight with assistant speaker, Catherine Clark. Um, and I'm sure we'll have some updates on where, where things are at that point. And do you have a sense right now of where your line is that if you get pushed too far, you're out? 
Uh, you know, so I mentioned, you mentioned public schools, you mentioned childcare. There's also housing, particularly in this district. You know, housing's a big one. So I, I don't have a sense is a, is a short answer to what's going to push me out. I want to see the actual details of the plan first before I can say where I would be on it. And right now we don't have those full details. Uh, by the way, did you see the, speaking of schools, did you see the dads on duty video the other day? Yes, I did. When the SOS went up at a troubled school, who answered the call? A bunch of DADs. What was your reaction to that? Is there any way to, to scale that up? And to describe, describe it for people who didn't. Well, well yeah. So, yeah. So there, there was a video being circulated uh, of kids fighting each other in looked like the school cafeteria. Over the course of three days, Another fight 23 students arrested for fighting. Apparently at this Louisiana school, there have been just a series of incidents throughout the week or throughout several weeks. And, you know, to your question, dads in the community decided to pretty much occupy the school and work in the school and engage with students in the school to help curb some of the violence that has taken place. Your qualifications are? Well, Dad, we decided the best people who can take care of our kids are who? Or us. I think it's a great idea. I think it's it's the perfect example of communities supporting their schools and school system. What stops things like that from happening more often is the bureaucracy within schools and school districts. Usually you have to jump through 10,000 hoops to, to allow anyone in the building. So a shout out to that principal in that school district for allowing this to happen. But honestly, my first reaction was just heartbro- heartbro- I was heartbroken that the kids were fighting so much. Like that, that to me just, just is indicative of, you know, how we are not doing a better job of meeting the needs of, of kids in our schools, mm-hmm. period. You know, we're not meeting their social and emotional needs, their mental health needs. We didn't open up with the COVID trauma in mind. And we see kids like that acting out across the country you know, and one can argue, it's like, do we do we want more, you know, the, the dads are dads, they're not cops. But what that communicates is we have to contain and control this environment as opposed to create a nurturing environment, which will make kids less likely to engage in violence in the first place. Well, the violence prevention programs and, and money that you've been pushing for I kind of flow into that. Have, yep. Is that on the chopping block too? What What's your sense of whether or not that's going to get in and what kind of violence prevention intervention it, is it? Yeah, I haven't heard that it is. So that's good. I hope it remains. What I've heard is we're going to do a better job of funding credible messengers and grassroots community-based organizations that provide mentorship, that interrupt violence, and that engage at-risk youth in a way that kind of meets them where they are. That's all incredible. I think in addition to that, there really needs to be a, a clinical mental health component. There needs to be a vocational component and there needs to be an education component. So true wraparound services for kids that have been identified as at-risk for whatever reason. I mean, here, not in my district, but there's a program in New York City called the CARES program where they specialize in serving children who struggle with co-occurring disorders. 
So kids with both mental health disorders and substance abuse disorders who have presented with depression, anxiety, bipolar, suicide ideation, psychosis, and they specialize in serving this group of students and they just have incredible, incredible results with clinicians working hand in glove with teachers in small class sizes, providing the mental health supports they need. We need more of that in multiple schools and we need more of that in community-based organizations as well. And, and part of my job is to help with the implementation of these resources when they come into my district so that we take a true holistic approach. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Speaking of young people, I also wanted to ask you about the, the Civilian Climate Corps, which is you know, the, the project that Sunrise Movement has really made its, its kind of flagship demand, which is you know, it would spend billions of dollars and modeled after FDR's CCC, and it would create one or two-year jobs for people doing you know, climate mitigation and other work around, around the country. I've heard that there's uh, some significant jockeying and some, or some pushback in the caucus. There are folks who are like, look, we're all for this. But why are we pumping billions of dollars into AmeriCorps' traditional side? So, you know, AmeriCorps, is a, as you know, it's this service project that already exists, but it's had kind of a spotty record. Mm-hmm. And, for, and for some reason, there's billions of dollars going into prop up AmeriCorps on the non-climate side in order for it to also be able to manage the Civilian Climate Corps. To me, why not just have the Department of Labor or somebody else operated. Is there any point in plussing up AmeriCorps to that significant a degree? Well, well, that's the conversation that's happening now. You know, to your point about the spotty record, you know, it's a spotty record with a much smaller budget. And, you know, the argument is with how are they going to manage a larger budget? Right. So that, that exact conversation is happening. And, and there are some making the argument about the Department of Labor doing this. You know, I I think for me, the bottom line is as many climate jobs as possible uh, (laughs) implemented as efficiently, but also as much as, you know, we want to have as large an impact as possible. You know, I'm not that familiar with how the Department of Labor works and or AmeriCorps, but it's good to see that, you know, that hasn't been taken out of the bill as of yet. So that's a good thing. And sounds like you're agnostic on who operates it or what's where do you come down on it yeah man i mean i you know that's not 
<laughs> I got my own priorities, so that's not mm-hmm. one of them. Right, um, right. But yeah, I just, I mean, for me, it's, you know, I think to ensure, you know, in alignment with Justice 40, right? Like, are we targeting frontline communities? Are we targeting mm-hmm. communities of color and, and kids from those communities to be a part of this civilian climate core? That, that's the goal. Like, what is implementation going to look like? And what sort of technical assistance and guidance are we going to give at the federal level to make sure that it's really a justice for the initiative and frontline communities are targeted the most? I mean, for me, that's the most important thing. I also wanted to ask you about your recent vote for the billion dollars in, in Iron Dome funding. A divide within the Democratic Party seems to be widening tonight with a clash over funding for Israel's Iron Dome missile defense system coming to a head. Afterwards, you talked about your district and hearing from people in your district. I'm curious, what were the calls like kind of ahead of that vote and, and after the vote from, from people in your district on the, on the yes side and the, the no side? Well, way more on the yes side than the no side amongst, you know, you know the Jewish community is not a monolith, even though people like to think it is. But more calls on the yes side from both progressive and more conservative people in the Jewish community. You know, so it's an important issue for this district in particular, you know, which is why I voted yes. But it's also, you know, as I've been asked before and as I've stated before, you know, that vote is not going to stop me from continuing to fight for Palestinian rights, to fight to end the occupation, which absolutely needs to happen, and to make sure Palestinian humanity is centered. I think it's really important for us on the left to really organize around potential solutions to that problem there and many other problems. You know, we need to have more conversations and figure out how to best approach this going forward. So it's not just one-off votes that get our attention. Mm-hmm. We need to be really strategic and engaged almost day to day to figure out, you know, how to solve that problem in a way where we are uplifting Palestinian humanity and make sure the occupation ends. And w- what about on the no side? Was there was there much organized activity or much much that you heard from constituents? No. In the way that you saw, you see a lot online, but I'm curious what you saw kind of on the ground. No, 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 not, no, not much at all, as a matter of fact. And if you remember, the, the, the vote came along pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. It was kind of just thrown on us. So we didn't, we didn't have a chance to even socialize it much in our district. We did a little bit. Mm-hmm but not as much as we would have liked to. So when, when things like that happen, and this is why we, we are often very critical of leadership for doing this, it's hard to even engage properly on, on who's on the yes side and who's, who's on the no side. But those on the yes side were very clear and very loud and very consistent with why they believed uh, the vote needed to be yes. And that's why I'm saying, right. you know, there needs to be much organizing on the left around this issue and others. But even afterwards, not much from the no side? Not from the district, no. I mean, right. that, that issue in the district, other than like a certain segment of it, is not top 10. You right. know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like in, in terms of issues in the district. I mean, I, you know, I, I ran on domestic policy, not foreign policy, number one, because we have a lot of domestic issues here, you know, whether it's gun violence or housing or education or jobs or or you name the domestic issue, we have it here. And when it comes to foreign policy, the biggest issue is immigration, you know, immigration reform, 
pathway to citizenship and things uh, things of that right. nature. So not much post right. vote either. What about on the Capitol Police vote? That was your other controversial vote mm-hmm. over the last several months where you voted present, which mm-hmm. which allowed it to pass by one vote. Did you hear much from the district on that? And what what made you decide? Was it that day that you decided to switch to present? What was your thinking there? Well, if I remember correctly, that was another one. That was another one that kind of snuck up on us. I personally didn't get a chance enough of a chance to sort of digest what was in the bill. What I did like about the bill was the staffers who were here during the insurrection, who literally were cleaning up blood and guts, were supposed to receive additional resources and mental health supports and other things. That was one of the things we fought for in the bill. What I didn't like was the, you know, what I perceived as more money to a police department that didn't need it. That's why I voted present. It was kind of like I like some of it, don't like other parts of it. I don't think I'm ever going to vote present again because that was just like an early sort of freshman, oh, vote present so you don't kill a bill kind of thing, trying to be a quote-unquote team player. But then it goes to the Senate And the Senate does what they do with the bill, and then it comes back, and not only is it more money Mm -hmm. uh, for Capitol Police, it's it's nothing for the support staff. So I voted no on that, but it didn't matter at that point because, you know, they had enough Republican votes where the bill was going to carry and pass. Mm So I was I chalked that vote up to like sort of learning and growing pains of being being new here in Congress. You also got knocked around recently for your uh, your Colin Powell tweet uh-huh. at, after his passing. What what what, what can you tell me a little about how that you know, about that reaction? I think if I don't I don't have it in front of me, it was something like it was it was a pretty honorific kind of remembrance of yeah, of, of Colin so, Powell, where people are like, hey man, you know, he also was you know perhaps could have been the one guy yeah. who maybe could have prevented the Iraq War set aside, you know, me lie, Panama, the other things that he's... Been- yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, I like your, your use of the term knocked around. That's a good <laughs> good term. Uh, <laughs> um, no, so yeah, when, when I heard of his passing, you know, what I tweeted was pretty much my first reaction. I had another tweet uh, that was going to be like a thread that was going to say the other stuff. I didn't want to post that on the day of his passing, so I kind of I kind of left it alone, and I ended up not posting it at all. And you know, for me, what happened after nine eleven is kind of like you know top of mind, and I, I remember it. You know, I, I remember it clearly. It was like you know he initially said there are no weapons of mass destruction, and then he said they were, and then we went to war. And for me, quite honestly, the way I interpreted that whole thing was like this system, the military industrial complex and this system and these people rooted in a system of white supremacy just castrated this black man in front of the world and scapegoated him in a way that led us to war. That's how I looked at that. Now, I haven't you know, done a deep dive into you know, his whole military career. But as a as a black man, and I said this to someone in private conversation, you know, I grew up without a father, and there weren't many role models in my community other than like rappers and athletes. So to see like a black man in a position like Secretary of State, you know, there was no Barack Obama at this time. 
even though he wasn't a perfect man by any stretch and did a lot of bad things, at that time as a kid, as a young adult, I'm not thinking about any of that. I'm just thinking about mm-hmm. this guy just like just being not and not only that, he's from New York, you know, went to public schools, you know mm-hmm. what I mean? It's just like, wow, like that's that's really impressive. So it's like, you know, it's it's the conflict of of navigating sort of this country as a person of color or a black man when you don't when because of systemic oppression you don't have many role models and you end up looking at someone who who's done some har- looking up to someone who's done some horrible shit mm. so for me you know on the day of his death I wasn't going to use that as a time to you know litigate all of that or talk about his legacy I chose not to you know at another point I'm sure I will you know offer the critique you know and I haven't <laughs> I haven't moved to the right on foreign policy or anything mm-hmm. like that. It's just, you know, it was, it was more. So it's like, as you absorbed it as a young man, you kind of just, you kind of felt like he got done dirty by. That's how I, that's how I took it as a young man, you know, and, and you know, mm-hmm. I, I could be wrong about that. That I'm sure that's arguable, but I, I felt like the system did him dirty. He was, he was castrated politically and he was forced to sort of do what he did. Now, you know, I know what I would have done, especially, you know, was this now 20 years later, you know, hindsight's 2020. I know what I would have done in that situation, but the world was different then. You know, there was no, there was no progressive movement and social media and all that good stuff. So, you know, he did what he did, man. You know, I, I think, you know, and this is kind of somewhat related, but not really a separate conversation involving sort of a racial analysis of the left left I think is important for us to have as well like that's a conversation I want to be a part of um, because I've I've spoken with you know members of the squad about this they've said it I've said it you know the the, the misogyny and the racism that comes out from the left um, is, is is palpable is real and I think some reaction is rooted in that, not all of it. And, and you know, the critique related to the Colin Powell tweet, I'll, I'll take it, I understand it. it is, I've, I, it's valued and validated. Um, but I do want to have a bigger conversation around organizing on the left overall, but then also a racial analysis of the left. Where else have you seen it most noticeably? The kind of racial politics of the left influencing the way that people respond to poli- to politicians of color. Yeah, I mean, when I look at the responses to like Corey and Alex and Ilhan and Ayanna and Rashida, I mean, it's it's fucking brutal, yo. Like it's just like not only is it brutal online, and, and it's like rooted in this vitriol. But they they have to have increased security details because of. Not just a brutal response of the left, but literally threats against their lives. Like it's, I mean, I've been in events with 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 them at times where I'm like, damn, are you the president? Like they've had some serious mm. security details because like they they get they get threats a lot. I get threats as well, you know, and I've had to have my own detail. But the way they get it, it's like a convergence of misogyny and racism because they are five, four, now five women women of color. You know, that's where, I see, where I've seen the most vicious. Um, but then also, like, much of Bernie Sanders' brilliance was rooted in his critique of 
the economic and social conditions of our country. But there was not often a racial analysis that was part of that. And I think some of that was deliberate, right? Because, you know, we, we, we want to have a big left 10 and bring everybody in. And and first of all, who is Bernie as a white, you know, Jewish man having a racial analysis anyway? I mean, of course, he could say something about it, hmm. but it's definitely important for someone like me or someone else to, to talk about that because of our lived experiences. Hmm. So, yeah, it, it's just like, you know, when I when I meet with certain groups and, you know, whether it's the Indivisibles of the world, the DSAs of the world, um, you know, and others, you know, it's it's like who's in the room, who's making decisions, like who's leading the conversation, what are we talking about, mm-hmm. all, all those things. Like it's 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 as clear as day, it's evident, right? Yeah. Um, and it's just it's just an area, it's a growth area for us. And I think we can get a lot better and a lot stronger, and I think we will. But we definitely got to talk about it. Right. And that's actually one reason I was probing on the question of how much organized effort there was on the ground around the no vote on the on, on the Iron Dome. Because obviously you have a large Jewish population. It's going to be heavily supportive of that vote. But you also have black and brown communities in, in your district. And it just doesn't feel like the organizing work has been done there around these issues of Palestinian solidarity to the point where you're going to hear from people about that. Yeah, especially when when people right here are struggling to put food on the table, mm-hmm. you know, like they, they, they have their own sort of domestic struggles. I mean, the overarching conversation around our funding of the military, our funding of certain countries over others, like that, those conversations happen. And that's like, you know, that's there, right? Like, damn, why are we spending so much? You know, we, we spend... trillion every 10 years on the military alone, no one bats an eye. And Manchin is trying to not spend more than 1.5 trillion over 10 years for like programs like childcare and what he calls as entitlement programs. Mm -hmm. So that right there, I think captures what's, what's wrong here, what's wrong throughout the country and what people in my district understand clearly and feel, right? Like, that's BS that we're doing that. And, and that absolutely needs to change. Um, but to your point, yes, on the ground organizing around whatever issue has to be done and has to be done on a consistent basis. But but also, and I want to just reiterate this again, we got to organize around the issues that matter to the district. And other than a small percentage, not a small percentage, but a decent enough percentage of people in the district, other than them, that issue doesn't register in the top 10. I know you've got to run, but I really appreciate your time, uh, Congressman Bowman. Thanks for joining me. Of course, sir. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. That was Congressman Jamal Bowman, and that's our show. Deconstruct is a production of First Look Media and The Intercept. Our producer is Zach Young. Laura Flynn is our supervising producer. The show was mixed by Brian Pugh. Our theme music was composed by Bart Warshaw. Betsy Reed is The Intercept's editor-in-chief. And I'm Ryan Grimm, D.C. Bureau Chief of The Intercept. If you'd like to support our work, go to theintercept.com give. Your donation, no matter what the amount, makes a real difference. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the show so you can hear it every week. And please do leave us a rating or review. It helps people find the show. If you want to give us feedback, email us at podcast@theintercept.com. Thanks so much. See you next week. Thank you. 
Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.